Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. And I'm almost certain something you hear in the next hour will open you to a new way of looking at the world, your life, yourself. Why? We are going to dig into the topic of cultural myth. For almost a decade now, I've been musing on the simple yet powerful question, what if? I've even thought about writing a book and creating a social media campaign. The simple question can open an expansive world of infinite possibilities if we choose to open ourselves into the exploration. What if? Those two words have changed the world started revolutions, caused hours of daydreaming and creativity, and prompted some of the most amazing inventions, explorations, and advances in technology, entertainment, and science. What if is a powerful prompt? Today, our guest asks a really big what if. What if this is heaven? Muse on that. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential wholeness as I introduce our guest. Anita Moriani is the New York Times best-selling author of Dying to Be Me, an account of her nearly four-year battle with cancer that culminated in a fascinating and moving near-death experience in 2006, which she vastly changed her perspective on life. The book, which reached the bestseller list within two weeks of its release and remained there for nine weeks, has since been translated into more than 45 languages and sold more than one million copies worldwide. Now completely cancer-free, Anita travels the globe giving talks and workshops, as well as speaking at conferences and special events to share the profound insights she gained while in the other realm. And today we're going to talk about her second book and how quickly, if you remember, we had her on just a few short months ago on the show talking about Dying to Be Me, and now we're going to talk about her book, What If This Is Heaven? Welcome, Anita. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Really appreciate it and appreciate being on your show. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I am really tickled and delighted to have you here again. And this next book, um, for me, is really quite powerful and meaningful. And I can't wait to really help our listeners get into that, Anita. But if you remember back, I have a traditional first question on the show. And I'm really curious how this might shift in your awareness since releasing this next book. So I'm going to ask our traditional first question. Can you share with our listeners, what does all things connected mean to you? All things connected. For me, it's the way I live my life now because when I, when I experienced the death state when I was supposed to die and I actually found myself, in fact, awakening 
into a state of more clarity than this physical life. My physical body was dying. It was in a coma. And I realized when I was in that state that in actuality we don't die, but that we are all connected. We're all one. And so everything that I everything that I feel, everything that I do, everything that I say affects the people around me. And I realize how much um, effect I have on the planet as a whole. And we're not taught that, but yes, every, and it was shown to me and I have lived it these last 10 years since coming out of the coma. And I see it playing out. I see it in my life proven to me over and over again. So I don't know if I'm doing a very good explanation of it, but I think in short, what I'm trying to say is that to me, all things connected is not a belief. It's a truth. It's a truth. It's how I live my life. Mm, Thank you for that. Um, I love that you say it's a truth. It's not a belief. It's a truth because your, your book really talks about our beliefs and our myths, our cultural myths and these truths. And the other thing that I really appreciate about this book before we get into it is really how you've articulated the expression of the whole. In this book, there are several different themes that come through when you're talking about the myths, that we're a part of this greater whole. And I I just look forward to seeing what wants to come out of that conversation because it was really beautiful. But Anita, let's just give the listeners a little bit of background in case they haven't read that first book, which is highly unlikely. There's so many of our listeners (laughs) that loved that show and that, that really raved about your message and they're they're really big fans of of yours but in the first book you talk about really this was a four-year journey into cancer and your body was just ravaged with these tumors the thing that I love about that story I'm saying love again a lot which is hard for me because (laughs) I do really (laughs) resonate with your story but is it was this miraculous healing as well as this new um, perspective on life coming from life after death, this this new awareness, this new consciousness that consumed you. But just give our listeners the, a thumbnail into the first book, and then we'll jump into the second. Sure. So in the first book, I talk about my journey, my four-year journey through cancer, and also through what was supposed to be the final hours of my life. I mean, I was Literally, I, I experienced taking what I thought would be my last breath. I experienced going into the coma, which, was supposed to, which I was not supposed to come out of because my body was ridden with tumors, some of them the size of lemons, and my lungs were filled with fluid. My muscles had all degenerated. I was connected to tubes, including nutrition tubes and every kind of IV and, and tubes. Um, I couldn't walk. I, uh, my muscles were wasted away. I weighed about 80 pounds. Um, and, I, and my organs were now shutting down. And the doctors told my family that I was entering, I was basically, um, my body was now dying, that I was entering the first stages of death. And they were so certain I would not come back out of the coma. And this was it. And what they, nobody around me knew was that even though my physical body was in a coma, I 
felt I had entered into a state where I was more awake than I had ever been in my physical life. And I was so aware of everything. I was aware of not just what was going on around my physical body. I was aware that I was surrounded by deceased loved ones who were there to greet me and to help me across. But I was also aware of everything to do with my life. And I was, and it was like I understood why I had the cancer. I understood how every thought, every decision, every choice I had made in my life up to that point led me to be lying there on that hospital bed dying. I saw the whole path of how it came to be. And I understood why it happened to me. And I understood the purpose of my life. It was just like amazing clarity. I understood how we're all connected. I understood why my husband was who he was and why we had come, chosen to come down together uh, and experience this life together. It was just like the most extreme clarity I can ever express. But more importantly than anything, I felt safe and I felt loved mm. and I felt free and I felt no judgment. There was no fear. All the fear and the pain and everything of the last few years were gone. And I felt that no matter what, I'm okay, that even death is perfect. I felt like I had come home. But um, again, just to cut a long story short, I reached a point where I felt I had a choice of whether to come back into physical life or not. And of course, I didn't want to come back. But I felt my father was encouraging me to come back because he said my purpose was not completed. But, I, but my body was deteriorating, and I mean, I, I didn't want to come back to a sick body. And I felt as though I said to my father, and remember, we have no physical bodies, no vocal cords, nothing. So it's like his pure essence, my pure essence, the pure essences of other deceased loved ones. It's like we merge and we know what each other wants. Uh, to know there's no room for miscommunication. It's like our essences are just merging and we understand. And that's how I understood I was loved unconditionally, no matter what I had done. And I wanted them to know that I don't want to go back. I feel as if I've come home. And then I felt my father telling me, you've always been home. You just never realized it. And go back and live your life fearlessly. And in that moment, I knew that now that I understood what I did, now that I knew what I knew, if I chose to go back into my physical body, it would heal and it would heal very quickly. And so when I came out of, so I came out of the coma in those moments and I'd been in the coma for about 30 hours, I came out of the coma and I was very groggy, but everyone around me were really surprised. And in four days, my tumors had shrunk by about 70%. In five weeks, they could find no trace of cancer in my body, and I was released to go home. Um, and that was more than 10 years ago. That was 10 and a half years ago, and I was released to go home and live my life cancer-free. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, so the first book is basically about that journey. And um, if I can, shall I tell you a little bit about how the second book came about? Well, you know, that was exactly where I wanted to go, was not into the book, but how it came about. I think that your introduction is just as powerful as 
the different chapters on the myth. And I, I think there's so much there that brings us really good lessons. So here you were having this really miraculous, what people would say was impossible or miraculous in coming back and your body healing in this three-dimensional reality that we call. But then you went on with your life. And I do love that story. Let's talk about that. How did this second book come about? Yes, so I love telling this part of the story. So when I came out of the near-death experience, so going back a bit to that time, after coming out of it, one of the things I realized was that um, I was already healed, but my physical body just had to catch up. And so I was euphoric when I came out of that coma because I understood how life worked. You know, it's like somebody who's been blind their whole life and suddenly they're able to see and you understand, you can see what it is, the roadblocks you've been bumping into, the things that have been getting in your way. Suddenly it all makes sense and you know how to avoid the pitfalls and walk around it. So it felt like that, like I had a glimpse into a whole other world and I now knew because of that, I now knew how to navigate this one. I now knew what my... Um, what my healing crisis had been about, what everything was about. So there I was watching it unfold rapidly, you know, like my body just healed. The doctors couldn't explain it. Um, they tried to explain it away, and, but they had the medical records. They just couldn't, um, it couldn't explain it and so on. So anyway, I was euphoric. I thought I will... Uh, I wanted to shout it out from the rooftops because one of the things that bothered me was why did it take death for me to learn how to live life? And I noticed everybody else is stumbling with all these things and I wanted to share it with everybody, what I'd learned. I wanted to share everything, that we have nothing to fear, that there's only love on the other side. I wanted to talk about health, that, you know, it's the fear of cancer that's worse than the cancer itself. And I wanted to talk about what fear does to our bodies. And as I started shouting it out from the rooftops, I thought everybody would welcome this because, you know, nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to struggle. We want to know how to make our life work. What I didn't expect was the resistance I was getting. That hit me like a ton of bricks. It was like, oh, people don't want to know. They, because what I'm, and then I started realizing People are invested in their beliefs because what I was saying went against everything. It went against conventional religion because I'm talking about there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no hell for sure, and there's only love, there's no judgment. So it went against conventional religion. What I'm talking about went against conventional medicine. It went against everything the drug companies talk about and the doctors and the medics talk about. So there was pushback there, there was pushback from the religious people. It went against everything we've been taught. It went against education. It went against, uh, I mean, I've had teachers come and tell me they try to teach this at their schools, the things I talk about, but they risk getting fired if they don't stick to the curriculum. And I, I talk about experience of empathy is so much more important than sticking to curriculum and that is actually why we're in such a mess because of what we're teaching kids in school so anyway all these kinds of things i was talking about what i talk about also goes against government you know what the government wants us to believe and so i realized 
that I better shut up or I might actually get assassinated or something mm. because there is so much control and I didn't know. So that's why I buried myself into my own world, but I could not integrate back into this physical world the way it is run. And the reason I could not integrate back was because the person who was integrated in this world was the one that got cancer. That person I used to be was gone. The one who lived in that fear, the fear of all the religious teachings, the fear of all the government stuff, the fear of everything I'd been educated, the fear of illness. I lived in that fearful world. And Wayne Dyer discovered my story, and that gave me the courage to share it. And I realized, okay, there is an audience for what I'm trying to say. But um, the thing is, what I started to realize is that now, 10 years on, I look back at my life and I have not gone back to the old way of being. I have not gone back to the old, um, the, um, old community that I used to belong to, the old cultures. I've not gone back to buying into all those beliefs. I've not conformed. I've lived my life pretty much the way according to what I learned in my near-death experience. And I've almost felt I've had no choice because I don't want to go back to being that person who got cancer. And as I look back on my ten, last 10 years of living that life, of not following the path of religion and conventional medicine and education and government and all these things and just following my heart, being who I came here to be, shining my light as brightly as I can, knowing what my purpose is, just following it diligently, even if it means... Um, disappointing other people, even if it means um, people not, you know, people being skeptical or debunking me, I still follow my path. I still, and I look back on the last 10 years and I think, wow, I've never had to worry about my health. The fear has been completely gone. To me, the difference between heaven and hell is fear. The fear has been gone. I've never feared my health. I've never feared death in these last 10 years, never feared getting ill, never feared not having enough money, and I get to do what I love every single day. And then I thought, wait a minute, that sounds like heaven. Maybe this is heaven. Maybe when I died, I didn't come back, and I've been in heaven all this time. I just thought I came back. Maybe this has been heaven for me. And that's what inspired me to write this second book. What if this is heaven? Mm. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I I imagine when I when I read that introduction of yours, and I I felt you on that beach. I'm just going to share a little bit of that story. Is that the world was still operating under this duality, and you were kind of at this choice point of like, do I? try to please others and go back to that or what? And share, share that story. You're a beautiful storyteller, by the way. This book is filled with beautiful stories. So yeah. you're sitting on the beach near the ocean yes. and you're asking, yes. so, what now? Yes, yeah. because one of the things that happened after Dying to Be Me came out was that I received so many letters from people. And of course, um, very positive letters about how much people loved that book. But in these letters, they were sharing the pain that they were going through. 
they were sharing and asking why their their lives were such struggle was, was such a struggle and every time i would reach out and try and help people there were more and more people writing in i just couldn't keep up with it and so i kept trying to hold on to my to my original message that i just have to be myself love myself shine my light as bright as i can um and then as these letters were pouring in i started to think but how is loving myself and honoring myself helping them and i started to think maybe i can do more i could have done more from the other realm if i had actually died i could have done more and that's when i took myself to the beach because i was so i confused i was going through a patch of being really confused after having written my first book and receiving all those letters from people. And I thought that, you know, I had come here to share my euphoria. I'd come here to share my joy. And yet what I'm finding out is that so many people are in pain. So many people are, in hurt, are hurting. I don't know how to help them. I just don't know. And I feel even worse because uh, because we're all connected. I know that... Um, I mean, I know I could feel people's pain. As soon as I read somebody's letter, I can feel their pain. And I actually think we all can, but some of us operate from our mind where we, where we can switch it off. But the minute we allow ourselves to lead from the heart, we start to feel everybody's pain. And so I was at this crossroads. How do I do this? How do I follow my heart and not get drawn into everybody's pain? How can I bring love and light into the world if I'm going to be sucked into everybody's pain? And that was my big question. And I took myself to the beach with that question. And as I sat alone, sat alone, which is what I do whenever I'm confused, I sit alone and I sit in nature and I listen to the waves and I put that question out there. And then I feel as though nature or God or the universe, whatever we want to call it, starts to communicate with me. I feel the answers in my own heart. And I can hear, actually hear the words. The words come to me. And I was reminded when I was sitting there on the beach, what did you learn when you were in the other realm? Just be who you are. Just be true to yourself. Just love yourself and shine your light as brightly as you can. The only way I can help other people is by being a beacon of light, not by being in darkness myself. And I realized that even a light bulb, even if all the other bulbs are out, if my bulb is on, at least it can bring light to the others. If I switch mine out because I feel dragged down by everyone else, it's not helping anybody. And in that moment when I sat there and I got those words, that is the only way that you can help other people is by knowing that you are loved, you are an expression of God, that you, that you have to start by loving yourself and honoring yourself and honoring your own journey so that you can be love in action. Mm. When those words hit me, I thought, okay, I get it. I'm, oh my gosh, I get it. I get it. So the thing is, Always, always, always to love myself first. And that's the only way I can be of true service to everyone else. Beautiful, 
beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story because I do think that is so powerful. And and there you are on this precipice of just the world's pain and then what you remember from this pure state of consciousness. So we're going to take a break. And I just want to let the listeners know that after the break, we're going to really dig into conversation about several cultural myths that Anita writes about that really creates that hell on earth, creates the fear, creates all that pain that we're talking about. She writes about 10 of these myths and how to maybe think about those things differently. I love how you did that, Anita. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. So we are talking with Anita Morani, and you can find out more about her at anitamorani.com. It's A-N-I-T-A-M-O-O-R. J-I-N-I.com. Um, and her new book, it's brilliant. What if this is heaven? What if? What if? We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, more with Anita Morani. This week's episode, Danger at the Old Well. Last one to the old well's a rotten egg. Ha-ha, I win. Whoa! Ah! Sassy! Johnny fell down the well. I'm wet. What, Sassy? You know where Mr. Gunderson keeps his rope? Go get it, girl. What? You'd rather use his time to set people straight about shelter pet adoption? I'm cold. People shouldn't be afraid to adopt from a shelter? Because shelter pets are screened for sound health and temperament? I'm wet and cold! Sassy, what about Johnny? <laughs> what? Let Johnny sit in the well until he learns to be more self-reliant? Sassy! What'd he say? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt! Have you ever lost a cat? And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org. Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the Lost Cat Magnet Invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cats stick to it. That's a good cat. If your cat was hiding up in a tree, it won't be up a tree anymore. It will be stuck to the lost cat magnet. And sometimes they fly toward you in the air. Just listen to one satisfied cat. <coughs> See, that's proof. You should go to the inventnow.org website too. But just remember one thing. Don't do a lost cat magnet. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and bugs. Ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you, the enchanted you. 
It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree. Yes. Is that one. The free to be me you. <laughs> Ask your parents to take you to this not so far away place. Come to the forest where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and maybe even listen to it again. You can do that by visiting our website at thedrjulieshow.com where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. Also, stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. I'd love to hear from you. And please send your feedback, leave a comment, sign up for my email list, and also come play with us and other global co-creatives at goodofthewhole.com. Again, that's goodofthewhole.com. We've been talking today with Anita Morjani and her new book, What If This Is Heaven? And you can find more about Anita at her website, A-N-I-T-A-M-O-O-R-J-A-N-I.com. Anita, Anita Morjani. Dot com. Anita, this book is really important, and I want to tell you why I think that. I, just as I was listening to you talk about how it came about, part of it was getting caught up in the dramas of life and forgetting our true essence, this infinite connection with the universe that you talk about. And in the introduction, you even talk about a few questions that come up, like, when I'm feeling lost or forgetful or in the fear, in the darkness, creating a hell, where am I not loving myself? And how can I value myself more? And I think that those questions are so important because they do feed into these really important worldviews that you talk about. You, you bring up 10 cultural myths and really how our whole world is created around those myths and how that creates this state of hell or state of heaven in our life. Let's just talk about the overview of these myths. How did these myths come to you and why write about them? Um, so I guess it's those are the myths that my own life was influenced by and why my own life was hell. And actually, I have more than 10 because I'm almost thinking, okay, I need to write another book because, <laughs> because uh, some of the myths I haven't covered, one of them is, um, is that there isn't enough to go around. And this is what makes people greedy and hoard money and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So that one will be more about, yeah, about the financial fear that we have, the money fear that a lot of people have. And that if I had 11 chapters in the book, that would, would have probably been the 11th one. Um, but definitely that's something that will go in the next book. So those 10, you know, that I'm not basically the feeling that um, that illness happens to me. It's, I'm a victim of my illness and, and I'm not lovable. And so those are basically the myths that were the biggest ones that were ruling my life and were behind every thought and every decision that I made 
that led me to that point of actually dying. Mm. Um, you know, and, that one yeah. is so important, Anita, because I've, I, I see the threads of it woven through a lot of those other cultural myths. It really is the foundation of can we love ourselves? And so there's a lot of myths about why we shouldn't love ourselves. And you go into that. But let's start there because it's, and you talked a lot about it in the first half of the show. You talk a lot about it in your first book, but it's really foundational. And our ability to shift our awareness, shift that paradigm is so imperative in moving forward in life, looking at things different. So tell us about this self-love myth. And then we know um, you get what you deserve. Loving yourself is selfish. Real love means anything goes. You you really build on this one cultural myth. But let's talk about self-love. Okay. Um, so we are taught from the time we're very young that loving ourselves is selfish and it's egotistical and we're to, and and um those are judgments like i even remove the judgment from selfish i even remove the judgment from egotistical like and because the minute we judge something we become uh, afraid of exploring it. We're afraid of being judged because we're afraid of disappointing other people. We're afraid of being shamed. And that halts us in our tracks from and stops us from exploring who we truly are, exploring it further. It just stops us from um, allowing ourselves to express ourselves and to articulate it a little bit better is that in actuality, we come here, we arrive, we're born knowing the truth of who we are. Babies are so full of life and love and light. In fact, I open with that poem about how we're born and then what happens. And, and, and when we die, it's all stripped away from us. And if you remember the first page, even before the introduction, the poem yes. I have in the book. Beautiful. Um, and so babies are born knowing who they are. We get it conditioned out of us. We come here to play full on. We come here to be love and to be loved. We come here to do those. We come here to truly express who we are. But then it gets conditioned out of us. And the reason why it's so important to love yourself is because when it gets conditioned out of you, when your mind starts to get trained to look outside of yourself for approval rather than trust your inner guidance that, that I love myself, I know I came here for a purpose, this is my purpose. Instead, we're being trained, look at your parents for approval, look at the teacher for approval, look at uh, your bosses for approval. We're looking outside of ourselves. We start contorting ourselves to meet other people's expectations to get that approval. And then when we don't get that approval, we beat ourselves up for not being lovable enough. We criticize ourselves. And we fail because we're trying to be something we're not. So what we're doing, because we're not taught to love ourselves, we are setting ourselves up to fail. 
we're actually setting ourselves up to fail because we're being taught, look outside for approval, and then when we don't get that approval, we beat ourselves up and we feel like failures because we're trying to be something we're not. We fail at being something we're not, and then we feel like failures and we beat ourselves up for it. That's why it's so important to love ourselves. Mm, And it's such a vicious pattern that's just this endemic cycle that goes over and over and over, just like you expressed. You know, the one thing that I want to just share with our listeners that I think is brilliant is that in this book, you go through these myths and then you have a space at the end of each chapter, living heaven here and now, and you, you do four things there. You first... Give the readers something to consider. Consider these possible truths. With every chapter, you reverse the pattern and have us think about it and entertain a truth that's very different. Consider these possible truths. Then you give tips and exercises for each one of those different myths and questions to ask ourselves, which is brilliant. I I really appreciate your storytelling is relevant and then you draw us into this self-reflection and then there's a, a part where I know that I'm what because when I'm da 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 so so it's brilliant let's take the self-love one because it's so difficult for people I, I have clients all the time that say well I just don't know how to love myself well I get it it's an idea in my head but it's so difficult for me to embody. And when you shift these cultural myths, really it helps us open to a whole new way. But let's let's just use some of that. Let's consider some different possible truths. And then how would you teach people? You have tips and exercises on this in three or four of those really potent ones. How do we help those listening today to really get it and embody it? So for the people listening today, I would uh, suggest that they ask themselves the question that um, what would I be doing today if I did love myself? What would I be doing if I did love myself? Another question could be how could I love myself more? And I'm just saying these from the top of my head because I could always flip open my book and, and give some of the questions that I've listed in, in the book itself, but off the top of my head, those are the ones that come to my mind. Another one is what brings me joy? Because, you know, whenever we, um, we, we cho- make our choices, like even if it's a choice for a job, even if it's a choice of somebody to get married to, you know, like whether to get married or not, we come at all these choices from a place of fear. We ask ourselves, okay, which will bring me more money? Do you know that that's a fear-based question? That comes from a fear of not having enough money. Whereas we need to be asking, which job makes me feel alive? Which job makes my heart sing? Which job will make me feel more passionate? Which one will make me feel more joyful? It's the same with anything we get into, even marriage. Am I marrying this person because they make my heart sing? It makes me so happy to do so. Or am I marrying this person because I'm afraid someone better won't come along and I don't want to grow old alone? Um, so, so basically, 
the question that I would ask is, what brings me joy? Am I doing this from a place of love or am I doing this from a place of fear? Those are the kinds of questions I would ask. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. You know, you talk about this returning to this state of pure consciousness, like being this state of pure consciousness and how different it is from our normal reality, right? And three-dimensional and this duality that we've created. And so this whole conversation about self-love comes from this deep place of knowing, this pure consciousness. I, I remember in the book you talked about, I didn't know how powerful I was or what I was yeah. capable of doing. And I think that when when we really understand, um, you also talk about that you're not a victim. You know, life, We you believed that life happened to us and that you were a victim. And so you're always reacting to your life circumstances instead of creating them. And when we shift into this state of being pure consciousness, you're in the state of responding and creating and 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 in that state of heaven like you talked about so let's just talk a little bit about that 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 shift of seeing ourselves as victim rather than creator yes so that's really important because many people see themselves as victims of their life circumstances and um, and the thing is that, and so we're just reacting to what's happening because, and people will say, will actually say to me, but who would create circumstances of dire poverty and hunger and so on? But the point is that um, we're looking at people like that from the outside and we're projecting. We can only turn inwards and see our own lives because when um, I could say the same for everything I went through. I was born into a culture where women are second-class citizens. Um, women are, are treated very unfairly in the culture that I was born into. And I was somebody who was bullied very badly as a child. I was somebody who had stage 4 cancer and was on my deathbed. Who would create that as well? But it was in realizing that, you know, we either have the choice of, it's, and, it's, and I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. I want to be clear on this. It's, the situation they're in is not their fault. But how they move forward depends on how powerful they know they are, how they move forward from there. So if someone has been abused as a child, it's not their fault. But how they take that and interpret it and move forward with it, that's up to them. That's their responsibility. Um, and so that's where I'm coming from. Am I a victim or am I somebody that creates life? Am I a creator? Am I a victim or am I a creator? And it was only when I died, when I was in the other realm, that I realized that when I realize, when I know that I'm actually more powerful than I ever thought I was, and that I'm actually a creator, I'm not a victim, it just changed it for me. And, and that's something I do consistently now. Like whenever I feel like I'm bombarded or in a situation that I didn't create, I immediately take, um, I take responsibility for it. And that, and that shifts me from being in a victim position 
to one of where I can change my situation. And sometimes, sometimes it even means um, saying to the people around you, even though um, they, they did, they may have done things to you, but it means also saying, it's my fault we're in this situation because I allowed it to get this far, but I'm going to stop it from here and move in a different direction. Um, yeah, how do so, you shift that into, Anita, excuse me, but how do you shift that sure. into empowerment and not self-blame? Like thinking about these things that you know, have happened to us and I'm a victim of it, but also not saying I've allowed it to get this far, but how do you go, oh, I don't have to allow this anymore. What's that subtle shift that moves us into the optimism? That shift is the self-love. If there's no self-love, then that shift becomes harder because then we go into self-blame. If there's no self-love, what happens is we may even get defensive about what's happened to us uh, because we don't want to blame ourselves or we sink down into the hole of self-blame like oh my god I'm so stupid how did I do that to myself so that's why I say self-love is so important for empowerment it's so important so even whether you've been abused as a child whether you've had the worst childhood your only work is to go on a journey to get to know yourself and love yourself. You have to get to know yourself and then get to a place of acceptance of who you are and then get to a place of total appreciation for who you are because you are a facet of God, a facet of the universe, whatever we want to call it. You are a facet of the whole. It is pure consciousness or God or the universe that is expressing itself from behind your eyes. You have to get to know who that has come here to express and what is their path. And you have to learn to love that. See, that's another one of the cultural myths that I think is so important. I can't wait to see what your second 10 or 12 or, or 30 is because I think that we live in this cultural myth of separation and when we can really shift into this understanding that we are connected and we're part of a greater whole, it shifts everything because we've really done a very good job at denying that divinity, of denying um, that sacredness yes. of all of life and ourselves as part of it. Exactly. And, and I want to add another piece to it for the people who say that, um, you know, the, the poor little beggar child in a, in a developing country who's, who doesn't have enough to eat, what about them? And um, they, a lot of people say that um, how, is, how can they take responsibility for where they are? How can they know how to move forward? My point is that when we realize that we are all connected, when I realize that that little beggar child on the street in India is of the same consciousness as me, when we all realize that, we will not let that happen. We cannot move forward until everyone, every mouth is fed. But it's not about getting into dimming our own light and getting into that... Um, into that depression mode of beating ourselves up that, oh, how can I eat 
when they don't have enough and then and and then sinking down into the fear ourselves it's not about that it's about pulling myself up into the light and pulling everyone around me into it and they in turn pull around, pull up the people around them and so on and on because basically when you have when there is a problem a systemic problem in the world it means it's not about going out and fighting the problem it's about healing what's inside of ourselves when each of us heals the whole world heals and because we're all connected um you know have you heard of the experiment where they once put about five or six women into uh, uh, into an apartment like to share an apartment or a house together and these five or six women as they shared the apartment over the months what happened is that their monthly menstrual cycle started to align and this is done without them consciously doing anything which means that they start to become entrained it's like they all align themselves with each other it's like when you put 30 metronomes into a room and you start them off at different times but in about 10 15 20 minutes they're all ticking and talking at the same time this is called entrainment the only way that we can that we can get rid of fear and hatred in the world is to increase love and not to allow ourselves as an individual to fall into that same fear and anger and revenge that's creating the problem in the first place. Beautiful. So, so the prescription, the medicine is in training to love, the entrainment of yes. love and as love. And yes, and my and this is my own uh, theory, and uh, there's no proof for it, so I'm going to. Um, say it up front that this is just something that I believe is that, you know, when people entrain themselves to the ones around them, they entrain the weaker ones entrain to the stronger ones. So what does it make? What does it take to make someone stronger or weaker? I think the ones with the strongest emotions. Now, if those emotions are fear, if the strongest one's emotions are fear, then we're all going to entrain with the fearful ones. But if the strongest emotions are love, we're going to entrain with the loving emotions. Mm. And so we have a responsibility to increase love. And we do that by loving ourselves and by seeing ourselves as an expression of God, as an expression of universal energy. It's a beautiful prescription. It's really, I love how you bring that in from your personal experience, from the wisdom that comes from the other realms, and then the application of it right here on earth, you know, coming back to be you and to teach this love. So thank you for that service. You know, before we close, Anita, I I have a question that I, I love to talk about visioning the new world into being. And we've been talking about there is so much out there, um, darkness, negativity, and, and we're trying to create this positive future by entraining to love, right? So by serving the greater good, we're talking about this wholeness. And from your perspective, we just have a few minutes left here, but from your perspective, what is one simple shift our listeners can make to really move into serving the greater good of the whole? 
It's so easy. Uh, it's so easy. It would be as simple as follow your joy, follow your heart. Your heart, your, your emotions are smarter than you think. And we tend to do it the other way. We tend to follow our mind or our logic, and, but our logic is deducing uh, what is outside, what's external. We have to take what's internal first rather than what's external first. Follow your joy. Always ask that question, what brings me joy? How can I love more? And then service um, comes as a result of that. And, mm. and, and I always use the analogy of the light bulb. If you want to bring light to a situation or to other people, you have to light your own bulb first. When you see all the other bulbs are not lit, it doesn't help them. When you also plunge into darkness, it doesn't help them. So be who you are. Um, laugh. Don't take life too seriously. Bring joy to everyone around you. And you do that by first bringing joy to yourself. And eat I love chocolate. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <eat> chocolate <laughs> and bring laughter. <laughs> I love that because it is about us in training to not just the love, but in training to that joy. And it does create a higher vibrational frequency and it brightens our light, you know? So yes. that's brilliant. Yes. Brilliant, and, brilliant. Oh, Anita, this was a joy to bring you back and to talk about this next book. And I just, is has it been released or is it upcoming yet? Yes. It's just been released, like just, uh, I think a week ago, or maybe a little more than a week ago, but it's just been released. And, uh, and I appreciate you reading it. Thank you. Oh, you are so welcome. I, as soon as Hay House said, hey, what do you think? I'm like, of course, I would love, I would love to have you back on and read this book. So I'm going to encourage our listeners, go out and look for this book, What If This Is Heaven by Anita Morjani. And Anita, I just wish you all the best in releasing this book and really helping us look through these cultural myths. You did a brilliant brilliant job. Wow, thank you. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And I can't wait to hear the next 12 myths or whatever comes next. So listeners, I just want to remind you again, what if this is heaven? Anita Morjani and um, her first book, Dying to Be Me, is incredible if you haven't read that. So just remember, together we create connections for the greater good of the whole. And until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.